right. Hey, my name is Erdan Maudsley. I'm a TPer from Region 10, and this is my partner, Luke Batten. Hey, I'm Luke Batten, and I'm happy to introduce today's episode, where Luke Elshoff will be interviewing Justice Ariani on debate limitations. And speaking of limitations, this intro is now over. So let's get right into the episode. Hello, and welcome back to another episode. Today, I am joined by Justice Ariani, and we're going to be discussing debate limitations or debating plateaus, call it whatever you like. Um, but the important thing is that Justice is here. Um, say hi to everyone, Justice. Hey, everyone, and thanks, Luke, so much for having me on the podcast. Uh, I've been a big fan since day one, and I repeatedly reposted every single on-point <laughs> podcast on the Ziggy social media account. So it's great to be of here. Of course. I, I noticed that, and uh, you're a real one for that. Um, but because I think you know yourself uh, sufficiently well to uh, tell me about yourself, then I think that you should go ahead and do that because I didn't have enough time to write a bio. <laughs> no worries. Okay. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, I've been doing team policy in the NCFCA for six or so years. Uh, if there's one thing that could like explain who I am as a person, I guess it's the fact that ever since I was like seven or eight, the thing that I found interesting or worth spending my time doing wasn't building Lego sets. It was walking into team policy rounds and flowing them. Uh, <laughs> the flows aren't quite readable, but I would just say it's a pretty good explanation of what I do. Uh, other things I do, I help run Ziggy Online Debate. It's an online practice debate uh, community and, and software application. Um, and I've been pretty active in the team policy community for a while now. And so I guess I know a thing or two about TP. <laughs> what are some of your debate accomplishments? Uh, what are you most proud of? Um, I guess, like, tell me, like, your debate achievements. Um, and then I guess you could also tell me, like, what you're most proud of. That doesn't have to be your debate achievements. Hmm. Okay. Achievements-wise, what I'm most proud of? I would probably say like what still is in my mind, like most shocking to me is um, my brother and I in our second year of team policy, the year everything went online. It was kind of crazy. We didn't know what we were doing, um, but we managed to make finals three times in our region, uh, all affirmative. And then we happened to also lose all three of them. So the, the final rounds were like making them was like, was probably like still in my mind, the most like, I guess, most satisfying accomplishment. Um, hmm. And then this just passed this past season, the last season, my brother and I also got seventh place at nationals. And then just this past week, um, Aaron McDonald and I, my moot partner, uh, just placed in T policy in the final round of the online national open. But like in terms of what I would value in terms of accomplishments, um, I don't know, I, I guess the overall experience, I really don't have a specific event that I point to. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. Especially with like, um, what year was it when you, when you got to finals? Is that your second year, was it? Yes. Yeah, so I, I started terrorism year, which was the 2018-19 season. Then I took a gap year for energy year, so I didn't do uh, team policy. I just did apologetics that year. And then the second year of team policy I did, which is the European Union year, um, we played second. So that would have been 2020-2021. Oh, yeah, I can definitely see how that's something that's really satisfying. Um, when, yeah. when I did well, like my first year, which wasn't too long ago, um, I, I was really satisfying. So. So yeah, I can definitely see that. Yep. Um, but on your own side, um, besides like being most proud of that specific achievement, uh, what would you say is like your overarching debate philosophy? Um, I know a lot of people have their own set of rules, their own set of um, philosophies or um, ways that they view the debate round in and out. Uh, how would you view the debate round? How would you frame it as what is it to you? That's a great question. And I guess that depends on what 
perspective, I guess, what side of me you're asking. From a debater, from a competitor perspective, I would say the most important thing to me in a round is just uncompromising realism. And what I mean by that is I always strive for in team policy round, what I hope my opponents are doing is striving to achieve what best represents actual policy debate. Like the, the killer for me in a round is whenever people start using buzzwords like, but this is a team policy round or we're in the NCFCA. At that moment, the round has deviated from real world policy debate to just a bunch of high schoolers doing some made up activity. And I think as part of my debate philosophy, it's to instill in the judges and provide the judges with what our democratic process, what our policymaking process should actually look like. So if your debate round doesn't look like something that could really happen in a congressional hearing or a subcommittee, you're probably doing it wrong. That's a great perspective to have. Um, I think it maintains the level of, how would you say it? Level of, I, I want to say like uh, reverence, but I feel like that's an overstatement, but it's like the level of respect <laughs> you have for the debate. Um, the way that you approach it and the mindset greatly impact that. Um, so that's interesting. I always try to ask people what their debate philosophy is because different people view it from different angles. And so that, that's really interesting. Right. Thank you for chiming in on that. Um, so today specifically, we're going to be discussing debate limitations or plateaus, as I mentioned earlier. Um, but before I begin um, going more in depth on that, um, let's just ask like a, a really big general question. Uh, what are debate limitations? Okay, I guess I would characterize debate limitations as just whatever you as a speaker, so as an individual debater, whenever you've reached a point in your debate career, I would say this typically occurs second to third year, where you do not feel satisfied in how you're performing. You don't feel satisfied in what your results are. You know you can do better, but you can't find a single element or maybe two or three things that you can actually improve in. I'm sure we've all been there. Like I've been there, like I feel like I'm there so many times, even I mean, in the last like six years of TP, where I've I've gone into a round, I felt confident, I know what I'm gonna say, I speak it, I, I give what I'm gonna say, and I know the second that I finish speaking that there was something missing and I'm not able to identify it. I think there are like three different areas, which I'll go into later, but I just said generally there are structural limitations. So like what you're arguing, like the content of what you're saying is there are partner communication limitations. So how cohesive is you and your team debating together as one? And then there are, I guess, argument generation. So like personal, like speaking wise, um, like how tunnel zoned you're in, in the round, those type of things. So I guess there's like three main areas, I, I guess I would say. Right. And you mentioned that uh, oftentimes this occurs when you're in like your second or third year, um, perhaps perhaps even before that, or um, like you said, now that you're in your sixth year, sometimes you experience that. So why do you think that we have this feeling within ourselves? And uh, what exactly is it that we struggle with, um, with these debate limitations? Right. So I guess it's really interesting to me because I've seen so many, I mean, debaters enter the debate frame way after I did. And like immediately within one or two years, they'll achieve, I mean, far, far beyond what I ever could do based off just their natural abilities. Because I mean, we all have a different skill set. And I guess the, the thing that we need to consider here is that everyone speaks differently. And for a lot of debaters, it's as simple as they're trying to fit a mold they can't fit. Like trying to be a speaker you are not is probably one of the biggest problems. But I'd also argue that there are people that are almost too um, methodological whenever they debate. Like they're note-taking so much. They're so zoned in on exactly the right thing to do. They have everything so scripted out, so well planned, they don't account for the human element. 
like I find this, I don't have a study like site right now <laughs> as a team policy debater, but I, I would argue that if you were to look up studies on this, operating off of adrenaline, that's in round argument generation, in round like using your language as it flows out of you will probably not only sound better, but work better in the round than preparing it beforehand. Um, I guess I guess a lot of things I, I've noticed are like a common limitation in like 1A, 1ARs for the affirmative um, is often enough, they'll, they'll be so focused on note-taking the last speech. Like they'll write down their opponent's tagline. They'll write down their opponent's links, their brinks, every part of their argument. And they'll only get like five, 10 seconds to write down their response. And so I'll even, you can even see this. You can even watch this in round. They'll get to their flow and they'll stall for like 15 to 20 seconds just to recall the argument, then recall their response and then get to it. So people aren't being as efficient as they can be in debate rounds. The, a debate round shouldn't just be about like taking exactly what in what you hear, writing it down, and then exactly as you're going to say it out, writing it down in your flow. It should be tagging it down and utilizing maximum efficiency. So like my flows and my brother and I's flows are like notoriously bad because you look at them, they're not like organized in the normal blocks. <laughs> You've just got like two lines across two pieces of paper that are like the back of a table of contents. And they only contain like one word for each argument. But what we did is we trained ourselves to memorize or be able to identify an argument on as little much as, as, as a little ground as we could. So like one word that can encapsulate the argument. So we aren't losing that vital time. We aren't um, just finding ourselves unable to recall the arguments as fast as we can. Was that almost like a, like a little language that you made? Or is that like a, um, a habit that you, you built up by doing it repetitively because of the lack of time that you had to write down the entire arguments that they presented. So I guess that one limitation was sort of just built out of a bad habit, like uh, debate coaches ever since I was a novice were like, you need to start learning how to flow because you cannot flow. Like, what are <laughs> you doing? This is not literate activity. Um, it wasn't literate activity, but it was based out of a, a need. Um, obviously, there, I, I, I can't say this works for everyone because everyone's even the way people write is entirely different. How people note take is different. But I have found that in a lot of rounds, whatever speech it is, there is so much time. And I think I, I can speak for a lot of TPers in saying one thing that people consistently struggle with is that moment when you looked at your flow after you finished an argument, when you have to recall what that last argument was, explain it to the judge, and then move into your response. Losing precious seconds there, or maybe misunderstanding what you wrote, can be the difference between losing or winning an argument, or making a drop in the one AR, which is so crucial. So it was built out of a bad habit, but it resulted in creating an efficiency-based system, a needs-based system, instead of just what's right to do. Towards the start of your answer to my question, um, the first question that I asked about why is it that we have or like struggle with these debate limitations? Uh, you mentioned how all of us as debaters, as people, as individuals, we all have unique natural abilities to ourselves. Um, like you mentioned, there are debaters that excel um, at a much rapid rate, a much more rapid rate than other debaters comparatively. Um, and so really debate limitations isn't an overarching term that applies to every single individual, but rather it's, it's a general term that applies to each individual in a unique different way and this strangely enough reminds me of um like those types of disney cartoons that say you know uh, embrace your uniqueness embrace your your special abilities but i think there is some level of truth to that that all of us have a unique sense uh, a unique speaker style all of us have a unique speaker style that is crafted by our own debate limitations but 
the potential that we have is locked behind those limitations. And the way to achieve that is to identify those limitations and move past that. And so how would you say we identify our own personal debate limitations? Okay, I think, I think, yeah, that's definitely the place to start. And you put that very well, like very eloquently. I don't think I could have worded it as concisely <laughs> as you did. Um, I, I guess, I guess what I would start with saying you need to first identify what it is that you are trying to mold or replicate when you speak. Because if you are starting, like if you are based, like starting your debate career, doing whatever it is, team policy, parley, whatever you're doing, if, if you're starting out with the objective of, I need to sound like and insert your favorite debater or insert someone that you look up to, just completely molding, just copy and pasting yourself into that mold, you probably are going to stumble into a lot more limitations. So you need to start with identifying what is your target goal? Is your target goal speaking in what you best, like psychologically, what you best mentally can do, what you most efficiently can? Or is it trying to sound a certain way, trying to achieve some, some like set product? Um, and then second, I would argue that it comes with just a basic under, like beyond a basic understanding of debate, it's just understanding the parametrics of how you want to debate. So like things like structural limitation, like, all right, you've understood what you excel at. Maybe it's reputation that you want to go or concisely explaining an argument or jumping on the piano, um, <laughs> whatever that is, you, you need to identify what it is you excel at and then base your entire style off of it. So I think a couple of things that I could mention here are like structural limitations. So like, how are you and your partner like running arguments? Are you just running whatever comes to your mind? Are you organizing them off of offensive and defensive? Are you cohesively working together? Because even after you've identified those limitations, like you just mentioned, even if you identify, you know, the, the true self, I guess, in your, in your debate persona, you may be limited by other things, like how you're communicating with your partner, how you're running those arguments, what arguments you're choosing to run. What a lot of people don't consider is that team policy isn't just about achieving the maximum efficiency that you can do, because if you're just running random arguments, maximum efficiency, maximum speaks, you probably still won't win the round because maybe you're running arguments in the wrong order. Maybe you and your partner are just running the exact same arguments over and over again through two constructives. There are just so many elements there, but I'd say it starts with number one, what are you trying to achieve? And number two, are you able to cohesively ingrain those concepts, not only into your speeches, but as your entire team as a whole? So you're both on the same page. You mentioned um, in response to about how, or like your first point about how oftentimes we look towards these fabulous speakers, these fantastic um, role model type speakers, and we look to them as a mold as to which we model our own speaking style. I understand why that's wrong, but oftentimes I find myself looking towards them for inspiration. And so what would you say is the balance between finding inspiration from certain speakers and not crossing the line to turn them into the mold that you model yourself after? That is a good question. I would say, okay, when it comes to like setting a fine line, I would say that you should only ever look up to a speaker to draw from, but not to replicate. You should only like strive to take elements from someone's, for example, their their vocabulary, their their use of elements of speech, their use of, um, let's say, certain argument structures or maybe organization. You can draw those elements. You can take those elements, but you can't ever replicate. You can't ever become that same product. And so that's not really a clear line. Like what I just said is really abstract. Right. But what it means is you should drive, you should strive to take usable concepts, but not the entire product. Like. If you want to sound like Patrick McDonald, that's great. Take his his like insanely high level like 
a verbiage he uses. Try to incorporate like a higher level of sophistication in your speech. Um, maybe use four point refutation more. Make sure you're explaining your opponent's argument before going into your own. You can take those things, but like if you try to just think like Patrick McDonald, be Patrick McDonald, speak like Patrick McDonald, you're probably not going to be able to do it because number one, he's just insane. But number two, like you don't have the mental ability to fit completely into that mold. And so whenever I say make a needs-based system, I mean make a needs-based system that's for you, not for that ideal debater, not for the ideal speaker. Because when it comes to limitations, you may be walking into limitation way before you realize it. Like if, if you're, if you speak really conversationally, like if you talk to someone and you're explaining something, you're like really logical. You ask questions. You sort of like, you basically just think of like your average Southern granddad trying to explain a concept to you. If that's how you like to explain things, like really conversationally, then maybe you need to choose a style like, like that. If you've gone two years down the road into this really sort of aggressive, professional, like seamless speaker, you're probably going to run into a lot more limitations that you have to then walk all the way back to, I guess, achieve your full potential like you were mentioning earlier. So build it around you. Uh, there's a lot of ways to do that, but that's just the, I guess, premise of it. So I don't want to backstep on my words, but I did say that, you know, um, our own unique gifts are, you know, what makes us ourselves and we can use that. Um, we can unlock the true potential of them by overcoming our limitations. But do you think there's ever a point that our own unique style becomes a handicap to us that we must, um, that we must, I guess, tame in a way. Absolutely, yes. Uh, I would, my, I guess my, my evidence for this point would just be like me when I started. Like 12-year-old people that hear me right now uh, consider me to be aggressive and arguably I am often too aggressive just, just <laughs> out of how I function. But if you were to listen to like 12-year-old me, I'm talking like pre-puberty, like high voice, five-foot individual me. Uh, I was so aggressive. I mean, like I gave my my opponents maybe two seconds to answer my questions in cross-examination. Um, I was to the point of tears. I was like, so passionate about what I was saying. Like we were talking about tariffs in Sudan and somehow I found a way to like internally <laughs> emotionalize that. So like it was as simple as someone had an analogy about burning a house down and I was explaining how the world was going to be burned down and I literally started crying. Like that that like my 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 like level of passion was definitely a stumbling block for me. And I just consistently saw that in every ballot and I just ignored it for like maybe at least a year until I realized okay maybe I need to tone it down. Maybe I need to draw from these speakers that have conversational elements. So what you're sort of hinting at is where do we draw the line in which we need to not just unashamedly just like accept ourselves just like completely go into the mold of what who we are how we speak and just absolutely just leave that completely unreformed unchanged and i would say that line um would come from or can be best seen by just examining different formats one thing i would recommend people that do team policy or really any format to do is switch to the other side like do ld for like a tournament maybe two tournaments and start to see how your style will change because like if anyone has switched from LD to TP, you will notice, or even from TP to LD, you will notice your style, your way of speaking changes. Like from going from TP to LD, I noticed I was able to gain so much like conversational ability. When I started doing Parley, I noticed I was able to generate arguments at such a, a quicker rate. There are so many elements you can draw from other formats. And by switching up what you've been doing, you sort of are able to understand, you're able to perceive a lot more than you were before because you're forced to experiment with new methods of speaking. And so I would say just two things. Number one, don't, don't like walk in and leave the same way. You need to try out many different things 
and see what works best, not just for you, but also for what judges and other people believe. So like get a coach to help you with that. Ask other debaters what they prefer. But second, don't don't take that rule to an extreme. Like don't do exactly what every judge says. Because I, if, if you're really out here to just please every judge, that's going to be completely impossible because it really does start with you building your own persona that's adaptable, not you being an adaptable persona to every setting. You should have a persona that's adaptable to different judges, adaptable to different scenarios. Right. That's really good. Thank you for your, your insight there. What would you say are some common limitations that most debaters in some form or another share? Um, because, you know, a couple of limitations come to mind, but if there's any listener who's still trying to think of, and what's an example of a limitation that I might have so that I can identify some of my own limitations that I have, um, what would some of those limitations be? Okay, I guess I'll just start with like, probably most common, it would just be not having a preset calculus on who's running what. That sounds like really complicated for like a really simple thing, but what it means is you should probably decide before most rounds how you are going to separate arguments between you and your partner. Now, this doesn't just mean I'm going to run argument one, two, and three, and you will run argument four, five, and six. Uh, I'm the one NC, so I'm just going to read every tagline from the one AC and then just respond to it or agree with it. It means developing like a general mantra for you and your partner that you will use across rounds. There are three that come to mind. There's shell and extend, there's splitting a neg, and there's an emery switch. And all three of these can be used to like as a criteria for what arguments to run. But I'll, I've just noticed a lot, like so much more and more, the debaters are using what's called a shell and extend. So partner one runs something, partner two doesn't know what to say. So they run that same thing and maybe add a little more, maybe fish in a couple like sketchy quotes in the 1AC and like call the 1AC out or call the affirmative out. But there's really just a bunch of repetition. They're overlapping each other. They're contradicting each other. So like I, th I would say that's like one limitation that I can think of. Not knowing what arguments to run, not knowing how to run them, and not knowing how to prioritize them. Right. And so you mentioned a little bit earlier that there are these separate areas in which a lot of debaters struggle with. There's a lot of limitations in these specific areas. And I think it's important to categorize these areas because it's not so simple as to throw all of the limitations that debaters have under one category because that would just be unfair there's a lot of different limitations that occur in several different categories and i think you ran through it very quickly earlier but could you go through them again and expand upon each category yeah so i listed like three uh i'm i honestly may list like a slightly different wording of them but i'll just try to generally like sum summarize them I would say there's like speaking and argument generation, gener excuse me, argument generation limitations. So you as a speaker, like, are you able to communicate what you intend? Are you able to communicate what you desire? And are you able to generate arguments at a fast enough rate that incorporates the round speed? Uh, this can be remedied through things like doing impromptu, doing parley. Like if you're doing TP, I would just recommend just generically do impromptu. It doesn't matter how random impromptu topics are. You learn the ability to speak on the fly. If you're negative, and even if you're affirmative, you need that skill. Same thing goes for Parley. You're just learning how to, within like two to 20 minutes, craft an entire policy 
or craft the entire attack against a policy, which is what you're going to need in team policy. So that's that's what that's what like a speaking limitation, an argument generation limitation is: not being able to effectively or efficiently run an argument, not being able to effectively or efficiently communicate an argument. Then we have the partner communication, so like cohesive limitations. So are you just duplicating arguments? Are you getting a maximum amount of argumentation done in time? And does your analysis complement each other? So does this disadvantage complement or bind a solvency argument that your partner ran? And then finally, I think I mentioned were structural limitations, um, which was just things like tunnel vision. Like, are you able to uh, like note, note take down what I mentioned earlier? Um, structural limitations, like um, like the split between what your partner, what you are, you together are running and the next things like philosophy and mantra. So are you crafting a narrative that incorporates the entire round? Sorry, I missed the first one. What was that? Oh, the first, I think the first yeah, one the I mentioned was one. like speaking and argument generation. Yeah. So right. the, the first one I mentioned, do you mean to repeat the first one I mentioned? No, I, I heard you. I just didn't, I, I missed the title. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Yeah. So speaking and argument limitation, you talked about how you can use like parleys to remedy that parleys and promptus. Um, so all of these separate categories, yep. we have the, the speaking and argument generation one, we have the character, not character, I wrote down character for some reason, the partner um, <laughs> communication, um, yes. and then the structural limitation, all of these are integral, integral to making you a better speaker. Um, I think you have to like master all of these to some extent in order to excel. Um, which of these do you think is the most important to be the best in or not the best in but to overcome? Okay, I guess it sounds like it doesn't sound selfish, but it sounds like self-defeating to say that like partner communication isn't the most important because I think we've all been there. Like we've seen partnerships where like whether it was like an impromptu partnership that happened overnight or if it was just a scenario where one speaker grew at an exponentially faster rate, we've seen partnerships where one debater isn't always on the same page as the other, whether it's at switches or whether it's consistently one debater, but yet they excel because one person is able to generate arguments, the other person is able to understand them. What I mean mm -hmm. by this is I would argue that being able to generate arguments and communicate them is the most important in pretty much every round. Just because as long as one person in your team can think of arguments on the fly, can consistently be able to communicate those arguments into round, you will start following that partner. Um, my brother and I uh, had a pretty, uh, I guess, interesting, like, act table communications of like what we wanted to run because we were constantly arguing uh with each other getting mad at each other online round like online rounds we were almost yelling at each other behind the muted microphones about like what <laughs> to run so obviously our partner communication was not at like a 100 stat it was maybe at like a 20 but when you looked at what we were able to generate even though we disagreed like once i heard like once i gave my one nc i generated like three arguments maybe on the fly or like maybe two minutes before the speech i didn't mention them to cyrus but i didn't mention my brother but once we created those, it sort of leads to other things. My brother now has access to the 1AC. He's able to look at it. And he's able to then base his understanding off of what I just communicated just through intrinsically just listening to it and then go along with that. So you're involving partner communication, but at its core, it's being able to generate arguments. I, and this is why I just say parley impromptu is so crucial. Like everyone is going to tell you that. Everyone's going to tell you it's important. Everyone's going to say, do these things. But the reason why they're important is because you don't walk into the NCFCA. You don't walk into a policy sphere with without the ability to like think of things on the fly, without the ability to defend yourself on the fly. Like if you've ever been negative, like briefless, without any content, you've given probably a great speech. And then you get cross-examined on like 
what about this statistic? Did you concede this? Did you agree with this? You always find yourself in this like, oh no, what do I do scenario? And that's because it's really hard to on the fly debate or combat what someone has had hours preparing. So argument generation speaking comes first. All those things will follow if you have that. Right. And partner communication, argument generation, a lot of those things go hand in hand. They uh, interlap with each other. Um, of course, they're obviously separate, but they, they do go hand in hand because these are separate categories that are integral to becoming a good debater. So naturally, they would overlap in some areas. Um, so with the, with the partner communication and the part that I noted that kind of overlapped with the argument generation is the different styles that you use to format your arguments. And you went over these, these briefly about shall and extend, uh, split next, and the Emory switch. Um, I don't believe that you actually mentioned which one you find to be the most effective. Um, I think different strategies work for different teams. Um, so maybe you don't have to answer that question if you don't want to, but which one do you find works for you best and why? Okay. I, okay. I, I have to admit here that like, I am consistently like caught in between doing a split neg and using an Emory switch, not like, not by design. And I'm sure for any TPers that are listening to this, or even Luke, your TPer, you can agree that like, even whenever you're like implicitly using one of these, it's not like you walk into the round like, right. huh, which one am I going to pick? Today? <laughs> like, you, you don't think that. It's just how the arguments end up coming out. There's sort of a logic to it that, that we create on the fly. But the problem is we don't really know what that logic is. We sort of just do with whatever feels right, whatever seems to be the best communication device. And so... I think it's important for all debaters to just go out research these. Like if I'm, I don't work for Ethos, but like check out the Ethos debate blog. They have a great explanation on frameworks, like just general criteria that you can use in selecting arguments. What I prefer most, what I've enjoyed most doing is an Emory switch. Uh, for those of you that don't know, it just means that the first negative in, an, in a negative round runs the offensive arguments. The second negative runs the defensive arguments. So offensive arguments like disadvantages, like a total takeout, like topicality. And then the defensive arguments are things like solvency. So removing the affirmative advantage, inherency, removing the need for the affirmative policy, significance, mm -hmm. once again, mitigating the need for the affirmative policy. And the reason why I like that strategy is because whenever you think of like how a typical team policy round goes, you have the one and C comes up. Normally, they're just like, in most rounds, they're either quoting all their evidence, running random arguments that are like SIG, solvency, inherency, maybe a DA if they have time. Maybe a topicality argument if they got lucky. Or when in their brief list, they just have the one AC in front of them. They've maybe had a couple minutes to like tag down like a card that had an old date or like something they disagreed with. But the reason why I like the memory switch is because it says counteract everything you normally do, throw all of the narrative, throw all of the reasons why the front of idea, the philosophy, the mantra is a bad idea, throw that right back at them, force them to get on the back foot in the 2AC, instead of defending things like the need for their policy. And then after you've just had this great eight minutes of combating the entire reason, the entire narrative, the entire like great convincing 1AC, which is typically pre-written amazingly, they've got a great philosophy. You've just, you just, you've absolutely destroyed that or maybe even dismantled that slightly. Then you walk into your 2NC, you now have eight free minutes to then say, we've already gone over why even best case scenario, the affirmative policy is bad. But here's why they can't even achieve that desired result. A normal split neg, the way that most negatives does it, do it, is exactly the opposite. The judge walks in, 
they hear eight minutes of like great philosophy, great reasons, probably like a, a libertarian, a free market perspective on the economy, whatever it is. They're vibing with that. Conservative dad, he is all in. He is absolutely <laughs> like he is in love with the affirmative speaker. And if you come in, you're just like, yeah, yeah you're right. But like, um, it's not a real, it's not that big. Like it's only like insert number of money. It's only, there's like this one technical problem. If you read their mandate, guys, trust me. If you do that, like immediately, the judge is still thinking about the philosophy and mantra of the affirmative team. And then there's an additional advantage that I would even argue that comes into play. So not only is you just, have the chance to force them to get in the back foot. Because remember, if the form of team is responding to a defensive negative argument, like a solvency argument, you're asking them to give more reasons to vote affirmative. If you're combating a disadvantage, you're giving them a reason not to vote negative. So the affirmative team is saying, here's why this negative offensive argument is wrong. They're not saying, here's why our case is right. If that, that makes any sense. Yeah, but it does. The, the, yeah, the second, the second reason is let's talk about like the block because the block is probably the negative's most crucial element, like the most winning, I guess, throughout rounds, it's the most consistent ability to win comes in the block. So if you walk into a block, you've got uh, mitigation and then you've got that five minutes for responses. It's much harder. I, I, I don't know if, you, if this is true for you, but I find this true for myself. It's much harder in five minutes to like go over all the technical nitty gritty things and provide analysis on every like solvency mechanism, inherency mechanism, than it is to go over general ideas. Because disadvantage is like a general idea why an idea is bad or why it would cause this massive economic loss. It's easier to recap evidence on those. It's easier to recap those ideas, especially whenever the first speaker is only gonna have five minutes to do it anyways. And so whenever you free up more time to just focus on my speak, the, the, the speaker, the, the second negative speaker has already gone over that. It had eight minutes for it. That means that the affirmative, the 1AR, is going to walk into their rebuttal, having not heard a single solvency argument, inherency argument, significance argument, or like any of that defensive argumentation. They haven't heard it. And now they have just five minutes to counter what you've just hit them with. If you, if you predate that, if you put all the solvency significance arguments, I find this true for myself. Whenever I, let's say I run, let's just take a normal split the neck. So I'm running the defensive argument, solvency sig in the 1NC. By the time the 2AC responds to that, right? Because the 2AC is responding to 1NC. By the time the 2AC responds to that, the ne negative team will most of the time, I would say almost every time, drop at least two or three of those arguments. Why? Because the 2AC has such good responses to them. If there's a SIG argument like, this 1990 data says their plan isn't needed, and they respond to it with like 2021 data, you can't carry that through into the 1NR. If you did, you would look like an idiot. But whenever you right. run those arguments in the 2AC, you're giving... For however like unfair it sounds, strategically, you're giving the affirmative speaker much less time, much less ability to tackle all of those technical details, which require a lot of time. Right. Yeah, I realize after all of this that I, I do need to brush up on my Emory switches a bit more. Um, the way that you laid it out sounds like the, the perfect game-winning strategy. Um, so I'll have <laughs> to look into that a little bit more. Um, you mentioned... Yeah, I... yeah go ahead. Yeah, I, I will. I will note on that though. I say this, and I like fully support that. But that doesn't mean I always use it. I normally like th that's an ideal scenario for right. realistic. It's not like we have eight minutes of disadvantages just waiting to be run. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the ideal scenarios, that sounds perfect, uh, which would make sense because it's an ideal scenario. Um, but anyways, uh, you brought up two other categories. Um, so that was the argument generation one, and you you said that the way to remedy that was to impromptus, parlays, et cetera. Um, I don't recall you bringing up ways to remedy the other debate limitations in the other areas. Um, 
maybe you touched on a little bit with the character, uh, not character, I keep calling the character, um, the, the partner communication um, with like the Emery switch coming up with an effective negative strategy, as well as the structure limitations. I guess if you had to put it in under one idea for each of them, what would it be? Um, and then if you need to expand on it, then go ahead. But under like one concise idea, what would you say is a way to remedy it if you can um, for character character partner <laughs> limitations as well as structure limitation i'm going to cross off character because i keep reading it from the from the page um, we're, gonna go give, ahead. we're gonna give luke a moment to scratch that off <laughs> <laughs> all right go for you're, it you're still in like the speech mode at the moment <laughs> oh yeah uh oh yeah okay um i would say okay so for partner communication and i guess i have like an unfair i guess unfair advantage on this because i i would argue sibling partnerships like have unrivaled benefit like not only are you benefiting in tv because you like if you're partnering with someone that's outside your family you have this like social need psychologically to live up to your <laughs> reputation let's be honest when you're with like a sibling unless unless you guys are like the perfect siblings that need has diminished to like near zero levels so you're, you're just doing you uh and that may result in arguments which isn't a bad thing but whenever it comes to like resolving your partner communication uh, I would say number one, find out how the how find out I guess how your partner, um, find out how your partner like best needs you or could most use you in round, uh, like use you in a good sense, like use you in the ability yeah. to like help with arguments, find evidence, etc. What I mean by this is is pretty simple. I think it, I think most people understand this. It's not that they it's just they don't implement it that often because I, I've heard a surprising amount of people that like they work on night briefs with their partner they do all these things with their partner but they whenever it's like comes in terms of like the opposing team is speaking or they're in prep time there's very little communication and if there is it's sort of like should i say something will they get annoyed at me if they're like writing stuff down you need to learn your partner like you need to know how they function how psychologically when they get stressed when they don't what to do in those scenarios and that's obviously very hard to do that comes with time and just building trust with that individual I mean, I would say some common tips to enhance that is just have like an upfront discussion. Like, okay, posing, let's say scenario one, opposing speaker is going over argument. You don't know what to say. Do you want to like ask me what to do? Do you want me to like type it in a chat, write it down on a sticky note? Do you want me to talk out loud? Is that okay? While the other term, the partner is speaking or the opponent is speaking. Then once you've bridged these like baseline, what is going to make you so annoyed or what's okay with you, you then enter like more technical things. Like, uh, you do you prefer to run these arguments? Do you prefer, uh, is there a sp certain speaking style? Is there a way that we can cohesively bend our arguments? One thing I was even discussing like very recently in the last day or two is how a lot of speakers will have these like two completely different worlds in both of their speeches. And when it comes from a judge's perspective, because the debaters don't think of that that often, but like you're walking into a round you hear an affirmative team that is just so well-grounded. They, they have this cohesive theme. They know exactly what they're saying. And you just have these two negative speakers that are just independently doing their thing. There's no blending element. There's nothing that can, can be driven throughout both of the speeches other than the fact that there was a summary in the last negative speech. And so you need to also make sure that while also you're not necessarily running the exact same arguments, you have a general mantra and philosophy. That sounds very abstract, but all that means is decide before the round how you want to counteract the form of his narrative. What if you don't know the form case? Well, in that first maybe two and a half minutes of prep time you use, decide what the main flaw is. What's your main disadvantage? Turn that disadvantage not just into an argument, but into a talking point. 
For example, if there are cases like, let's require um, privatization. This is a case that we, I just hit coincidentally. Let's say a case is like, require prioritization. Your your philosophy, your mantra could be, let's allow market-free choice. If you're saying we should have a free market, allow market-free choice. So just choose a general mantra that can be used throughout all the arguments that will help build a cohesive partner communication. And then just make sure you understand your partner. Don't overlook that element. Don't assume you know them. Make sure you do. Great. That's, that's fantastic advice. Definitely taking notes on that one. Um, what would you say... What would you say is like the remedy for limitations on the structural category? Okay, so I guess I, I to be honest, I don't even know which one I was referring to as structural, but I think I mentioned like notation and then I mentioned um like the what you're running, like the structure. I think stuff. you, you use the, um, the word um like using your own tunnel for the actual like round. Oh tunnel vision. Yeah. Yeah, tunnel, tunnel vision. vision. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um I guess what I would say for structural limitations, um, like tunnel vision in your speech and your round, I, I guess a couple of things that I would think of when it comes to tips would be, number one, don't overlook the little things. So technicalities, evidence disputes, argument structure, these are all very important. The amount of times, and I, I guess I've seen this I, I, this, I think this is just a general trend, but like, I feel like there was a lot more reverence to use a word that you used earlier. There was a lot more reverence for argument structure, like ensuring that your disadvantages have links, brinks, impacts, et cetera, whatever it is, warrants, claims in your, your topicality arguments, they all have this structure. Those things are just valued so much less now. And I would argue that while you don't need them per se, you don't need to mention every single one of these buzzwords, you should make sure that every single one of your arguments has those. The reason why this is important is because whenever you note take, you shouldn't just be writing down the words as the front speaker or as the negative speaker says them. And I guess I'll ask you a question here, Luke, I, I feel like because it's fitting. Sure. How many times have you like as a debater, like made up your tag pretty much on the fly? Oh, it depends if I'm rebuttal or constructive, but um, on the fly, like complete like a new argument, just writing up your tag. Well, no, just more of like you have like a general idea written down in your flow, but like the actual tag that you double tag to the judge, the wording changes or like slightly is amended or is created as you speak it. I typically rely on the own tags on the brief themselves um, for like okay. reconstructive speeches. Okay, so L Luke is the exception here. He's, he's too oh. But um, <laughs> I would say, so what a lot of people do, and I guess, I guess this comes into rebuttals then, because you did mention that it changes for rebuttals. But yeah. what a lot of debaters do, I, I think this is true for myself. Maybe I'm just, I guess I'm just the single bad practice here. But what I'll do is I'll <laughs> have, you know, the words written down my flow. Whenever I actually like, I'm trying to think, okay, wait, I, I need to remember that this wasn't just for my memory's sake. This was all for the sake of communicating to the judge. How am I going to tag this? Like my tag might say economic disadvantage, but really the, the disadvantage is specific to like X jobs lost. And so the tag will just like change. But if, remember, if, if your opponent tags a disadvantage against your front of case as like economic harm, and you write that down as your flow, and then you write down your responses, whenever you get to your speech and you enter the point economic harm, it's going to take you at least a little buffer to remember which economic harm are they talking about, which specific argument are they talking about. And so while you don't have time to list down economic harm, X card from X author, this many lives lost, this much economic harm you can find ways to effectively incorporate elements of an argument. So instead of economic harm, you could write down like statistic on, on 
jobs lost or lives lost, whatever it is. And so you need to start with figuring out how you can best remember things on the fly. So like structural limitations can definitely be boosted like that. Make sure you're not just tunnel vision focused on note-taking. This is another, I guess this is sort of like a sidetrack, but this is another thing I find about note-taking very important. Whenever you're briefless, what a lot of teams do is they spend every single like ounce of their ability flowing every single word of the 1AC. And I would argue that if you are the 1NC, flow like the minimum amount of words of the 1AC as possible and listen to the maximum amount of words. Less is more. The reason why is because when you're note-taking, your brain is now focused on how can I remember this later instead of how can I best understand and critique this now? And whenever you're briefless, that's what you need. You need the ability to critique it immediately as soon as it's coming and being received. If you're involving another process, which is note-taking it, it's going to get slower. You're going to have that little bit of prep time to scan what you need. But I would always focus on just hyper-critiquing every word of every piece of evidence. Can Make sure you're completely understanding the ideas, not just writing them down. Like baseline, yeah, you might need a couple of the tags. You might, you definitely need the mandate. But more than that, you need to be focused on understanding it in the moment instead of just for later. Because whenever you focus just on the for later part, just on I'm going to need this later, you lose that fact that you're probably losing out on the analysis that your brain can do because your brain isn't just definitionally good at, at multitasking. So I guess, yeah, there's a couple of things. Like number one, um, for structural limitations, structural like notation-wise, um, and then uh, I'm afraid of the other thing I mentioned, but like just generally ensure that whatever it is you're doing is based on how you can best communicate it, but how you can best articulate it instead of how it can later on be remembered. Right. So I guess in general, to recap this, this sort of section here on the different categories um, for the first one, which was, which was argument generation. And um, I think it was speaks or delivery or something like that. It's remedy it through parliamentary debate, through practice debate, through impromptus, any sort of form of practice that you can get your hands on. And then for the, the pan, the, the partner communication, it would be developing a, a mantra that you guys utilize in, in round and just, in general, understanding your partners so that you know what they're thinking about. And um, when you don't know what you're thinking about, then you have that level of chemistry that you latch onto their points as they bring them up and you continue that. And then for the yep. final one, which is uh, structural limitation, just focus on the little things. Um, lots of little things that I can't talk about because there's so many that Justice brought up. But it's, it's a lot of different little things that you need to focus on in structural limitations. Would you say that's an, what's yep. an accurate summary? Yeah, I would, say it's a, I, I would say it's a fair summary. And just one thing to remember for partner communications is always just there's no way to just guarantee this process. There's no way to like formulize this process. Um, but like pay attention to little things, body language of your partner. Like you can kind of tell whenever they aren't listening to you, whenever they don't want to be talked to, all those different things. Those are very important. Talk through them. Uh, I guess this like in a sense team policy does i guess like i mean you're developing a relationship with someone in like an extremely high stress stress environment in fact there are like a bunch of there's like a bunch of commentary like back in the day about like oh here's how team policy like simulates like the stress in a marriage pretty much um <laughs> in like a an hour and 30 minute format and like for lack of any better explanation that's pretty much true because you're going through like high intensity stress not knowing what to do on repetition again and again and again for like a little psychological benefit which is i went around in team policy so remember <laughs> you're real people too it's not going to be done by a formula but focus on understanding the person before just 
I need to do my best. I need to be the best speaker. I need to make sure my speech is the best. Focus on their needs first. Right. Um, since we're coming a little short on time here, I think I'll ask you one more question before I close out. Um, I think this one comes from my heart as much as it comes from any listeners who are who are watching, listeners who are watching, listeners who are listening. Um, but th this is because recently I've been going through what we've been just talking about this entire episode, which is debate limitations. You know, it's my second year. Um, it's about time for this to happen. And so I'm looking to see like, you know, what are my limitations? What can I improve upon to become better? But, you know, I can't quite put my finger on it. And so this interview has been a, a, a good way to help me walk down the path to realize what I need help with and how to overcome those difficulties. But what would you say is something that someone can identify when they don't know what they need to work on? How can someone improve themselves when they don't know what they need to be improved upon? Okay, so when I was thinking about this before the podcast, whenever you talked, you just gave a general idea of the topic. I, I was trying to think of like what for me in the past has has helped me with that, and like it's funny because there have been just so many times when I've identified limitation. Like one, for example, most recently was just learning like this. I should have learned this probably when I was a kid, but like sleep matters because like the actual way, like the genuine way that it affects your ability to speak on the fly is crazy. Like. I would I would actually ask everyone to participate in like a, a trial study that is doing a debate round with like two hours of sleep and then doing one with like nine hours of sleep. You will find a difference. But when it comes to just a general thing, when a general like where is my limitation, I start with finding where what area are you least comfortable with? Where is that feeling? Because I, I know every person that's done debate here has that feeling when they know they could have done better. There's just this like there's this just sinking feeling in your stomach where you're like, I know I missed something. So start by asking, when did that occur? Was it a cross-examination? Was it a certain speech? Was it your one AR? Was it your one NC? Maybe you don't know what the element was, but you just didn't feel good after it. So first, start by identifying that. Then second, start recording that. Just I, This is just a really good practice to do overall. Record your speeches. Get permission from everyone around. Record them. Listen to them. If you're finding yourself like, why did I say that? Why did I do that? Maybe start questioning, examining what those elements are. But I would just say, number one, you need to be able to listen back to what you're saying because you can you can feel like really stuck when all your memory is, is what you tell yourself about it afterwards. But whenever you have this ability to just replay it over and over again, you can hyper critique. You can you can get like insecure about yourself, which is a good thing when it comes to uh, progressing. But then additionally, beyond that, so you've identified number one, where are you least comfortable? Number two, you can recap. You can look over that information. Number three, I would involve more people. Ask them areas. Is it a speaking style? Is there something that I'm missing here? And then additionally, beyond all of these things, I would I would argue that a lot of it isn't necessarily speaking speaking related. So like if you believe that you aren't speaking as effectively as you are, that problem may not be because you aren't a good speaker or because you haven't met your your weekly quota of parley rounds. It may just be because there's another related problem. Like maybe you don't understand the topic area as much. Maybe you need to research this topic area more. Maybe you need to change the way you note take so that when you speak, you aren't relying on something you can't understand. Or maybe it may be that there's there are additional problems, like your partner isn't supporting you as you need. So I would start by number one, identifying, like I said, the area you're least comfortable, repeating that as many times. If you can't identify something, maybe engage in drills, like a cross-examination drill, just giving that speech over and over again. One thing that I've done, and I'll just I'll leave it at this. One thing I've done is once I've identified a speech that I'm uncomfortable with, I'll I'll if it's a rebuttal, like a 1AR, 
I'll like generate like five or six arguments I can think a negative team would break. And whenever I have time, just mentally give a speech against the argument. Maybe, maybe you can do it out loud. Maybe you can do it mentally. But like try to replicate what you did with those same arguments and try to replicate it over and over again and see what changes. If something is consistently changing, you can identify what that is and you may have found your problem. If you aren't able to like reliably say, I'm not, sh I, I can't really find out what the best way to do it was. Maybe that's where you need to start finding out why am I changing? Why can't I seem to find the best way to respond to something? And there are many ways to, to, to solve this, but I think that's a step later. I said the first step is identify where it is you're not comfortable. Well, I think this interview has helped me uncover what my limitation is, and that is a lack of sleep. And because it's 1137 p.m. on a <laughs> Tuesday night when the episode is supposed to come out tomorrow, I think this is a good place to end the episode so I can get a good night's rest before I publish it. So thank you so much, Justice, for uh, coming on here and giving some some insight, very valuable insight that I will uh, I will treasure in my debate box. I don't know why I said debate box, but thank you, Justice. <laughs> Thank you, Luke. Might consider them might consider placing a little bit of the advice in the dreams too. Get some rest. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> <laughs>